If you would, open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. We'll read the whole chapter. In the first year of Darius, by the way, I'm going to mispronounce some of these names. It happens. I, 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 I'm a Moses without an Aaron. I, I, I get tongue-tied. So I, I pronounce this next guy's name Ahasuerus. I don't know if that's right or not. That's what I'm sticking with, okay? So in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belong, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, who are near and those who are far away, and in the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets." All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like that has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. And we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to your righteousness, righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. 
Now, therefore, O Lord God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the, whole, for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks... An anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for a half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Pray with me. Lord, what a joy it is that we get to come here and open up your word. We get to unpack it and we get to hear from you. We get to have our lives transformed through your word by your spirit. And I pray that that would happen in this place. Take every heart and mind captive now for your glory. May my words fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. As I was preparing to wrap up the book of Daniel... Um, I thought a lot about what Daniel went through in that 65 years or so up to this point as he was um, in exile in Babylon, and we just talked about some of that. Um, He got to see kings come, and he got to see kings go. He got to see waves of exiles come in. He got to see the armies of Babylon 
unleashed against his homeland. He dealt with a whole lot of pain. And so I think it's fair to ask the question at this point, because we've raised it in previous sermons. I think we can ask the question, was it worth it? We've been talking about Daniel being salt and light, Daniel acting as a preservative, but really, as it's coming towards the end of his life, what exactly did he preserve? When you really look at how the city is going, what exactly did he preserve? As a matter of fact, last week we looked at Daniel being thrown into the lion's den, and it certainly seems from Scripture that he was the only one. Where were the rest of the Israelites? Where were the rest of the people who refused to bow or to refuse to pray to the king? You know, where, where were the petitions being passed around? Where were the protests out in the streets? Save Daniel. There's, there's none of that. It seems like Daniel is completely alone in this. So what exactly did Daniel preserve? And I think that's a fair question. You know, he did, as we just mentioned, he did hopefully preserve the life of a couple of kings. King Nebuchadnezzar, King Darius. I think he preserved some, the, uh, the wise men and the enchanters. We see the fruit of that almost 600 years later when the wise men come to, to worship a Jewish Messiah. I think you see the influence of Daniel with these men. But I, I think more than any of those things, really what we see Daniel was preserving was actually his own life. He was preserving his own life. And I want you to hear me on this. The outworking of believing the gospel is sharing the gospel. All right? The outworking of believing the gospel is sharing the gospel. If Daniel had refused to do this and he had isolated himself and refused to be a city on a hill, refused to be salt and light, Daniel himself would have been in danger of losing the gospel. Because sharing our faith actually anchors our faith in a way that no book, no church service can. So we simply have to share the good news in which we have been saved. It's good news. It's news. It's meant to be told. And so if you're not sharing the gospel, I would say that you are in danger of losing that gospel, or at least you don't understand what the gospel is. Now Romans 10 says, but what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. What we believe is what we confess. If you're not confessing, it's likely you don't believe. And I would think the more and more Daniel just professed these things, confessed these things, more and more he is writing the gospel on his own heart. Not just preserving others, but preserving himself. And we've seen throughout this book of Daniel his actions and his words and how they've acted as preservatives. And tonight we're going to look at how how he actually prays. How does his prayer act as a preservative for him and for his people? So I want us to look 
some, somewhat in detail at this prayer, but I'm going to leave us time to pray at the end. Uh, the first thing I want us to look at is what drives this prayer. Go back to verse 2. It says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and please for mercy. So the first thing you see here is Daniel. He was actually in the word. He was in scripture and scripture led him to prayer. In particular, he's reading the book of Jeremiah. Remember, Jeremiah is just a contemporary of Daniel at this point. And yet, Daniel's hearing Jeremiah, and even at that time, he says, what Jeremiah says is the word of the Lord. It is Scripture. He's taking that, and he's receiving it. And, and so Daniel is going through the Scripture, and he, as he's reading Daniel or Jeremiah's words, he comes across this, this writing about 70 years. Jeremiah said, you'll be in exile for 70 years. And, and, and Daniel's there, he's, you know, he's doing the math, and he's like, I've been here at least... 65 to maybe 68 years at this point. He's got to be thinking, that's, that's just a couple years away. I, I could actually be going home. The, the 70-year exile can be ending. I could be going back to Jerusalem. And, and so I'm sure his heart starts beating faster as he's reading those things. And, and so he begins to pray. But he doesn't just launch up and just start praying. His prayers are shaped by Scripture because he knows in Leviticus Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 30, that God says, well, it's only if you confess your sin will the land be restored to you. And so Daniel, he goes, I'm going to pray and I'm going to confess. That's the first thing he does. It's just a prayer of confession. Exile was the punishment for their sins and restoration would only come if they confessed and repented. And so we hear, see here that Scripture is what is shaping, it's what is driving Daniel to pray. The prayer is absolutely saturated with Scripture. You're going to find references in just this two-minute prayer. You're going to find that Daniel alludes to Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, Exodus 34, Psalm 44, Jeremiah 25, and Jeremiah 29. The guy knows his Bible, and it is just pouring out in prayer. And, and when your heart is just brimming with Scripture, it's going to overflow in prayer. That's what Jesus said. In John 15, he says, If you abide in me and my words in you, ask whatever you will. Pray, and it will be done. And what he's saying is if my words are dwelling in you, you're going to burst and pray, and you're going to pray the right things because you're going to pray what I want you to pray. And I'm going to say, yes, yes. And that's what we see Daniel doing here. This is, how, this is how prayer being shaped by Scripture works. I'll use the example of a, a married, if you're married, okay? Many of you are married. Let's say you're going through tremendous difficulties in your marriage, and I know several of you in here are. How does Scripture fuel and shape your prayer. Well, you, you can think, well, Ephesians 5 says that I'm their husband. I'm to love my wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I'm commanded to love this person. 
And then you could go to Matthew 22, in which Jesus says, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. So even if you're not feeling very connected with your wife, you know that, well, God still says, even if I don't feel that close to my wife, even if I kind of relate to her right now like I would an acquaintance or a neighbor, I'm still supposed to love her. You could go to Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew 6, in which Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. So even if you're in a relationship where you're feeling hostile to your wife or hostile to your husband, you're supposed to love them because you love your enemies. So you love your spouse, you love your neighbor, you love your enemies. And you come to 1 Timothy 1.7, which says God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and self-control. And so you're thinking these things are all brimming in you. And you're like, even if my spouse is hard to love, even if I'm feeling like a stranger to her, even if I'm feeling hostile to him, You command me to love, and you give me a spirit of love, and you give me a spirit of self-control. And you don't command me to do anything that you will not give me the power to do. And so in confidence, you begin praying, God, let me love my spouse. That's, That's how Scripture begins shaping prayer. And God's saying, yes, yes, because that's what he wants you to do. So scripture gives us focus to our prayers. It gives fuel to our prayers. I, I love in the morning, I always get a cup of coffee. I go outside the front porch, wrap myself up in a quilt and, uh, and pray, read. And I found over the years that if I just jump right into prayer, um, my mind wanders like crazy. I'm thinking about the game last night. I'm thinking about what I have to do today. I'm, it's, just, it's just rambling prayer. But if I open up the word first, and I allow God through his word to give direction and focus, really it becomes a spirit-led prayer. And so I always just spend at least the first few minutes just in the word. Don't think of the word and prayer separate. Pray with an open Bible. All right? That's what Daniel did. One of the things that opening up to Jeremiah and opening up to Scripture does for us In addition to fueling prayer, it also allows us to understand the age in which we live. It allows us to make sense of where we are in history. Daniel's opening up the word, and he's, he's trying to find, how does this apply? Oh my goodness, I'm two years away from this. And now he understands where he is in history. And now he can act accordingly. Well, I need to pray. I need to pray. I need to confess our sins so that this will happen. And so we could turn to Scripture and we could see where we are in history, in which the Messiah has come, the Son of God has come. He lived the perfect life we should have lived. He died to death we should have died. He rose again. He is now ascended. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father. All power and authority has been given to him. And then he says to the church, go make disciples. That's the age in which we live. If you want to make sense or give meaning to your life, how do I fit in the grand plan of God? That's where you are. Jesus is risen. Jesus is ascended. He has given his church a mission. And now you're to think, how do I pray towards that end? How do I fulfill that calling? Otherwise, you're just going to be wasting time. All right, let's look at the content of this prayer. This prayer, you're going to see confession of sin, 
going to see appeal to, an appeal to God's mercy. You're going to see a passion for his glory. I'm going to go through these quickly. First, you see a confession of sin. Actually, you see that throughout. But one of the things I hope you noticed is over and over again, Daniel says, we. We. Now, a lot of commentators, you're, you're reading through this, and they're saying, you know, Daniel probably prayed this. This was the prayer he probably prayed through the window that everybody saw that got him in trouble, that got him thrown to the lion's den. And the timeline fits. If I'm Daniel, I wouldn't be using the we have sinned. I'd be like, everybody else here has sinned, but I am holding fast. For 65 years, I've been holding fast. But Daniel doesn't do that. Over and over again, he says, we. And what he's doing is he is so identifying himself with the covenant people of God that he is taking on their shame, he is taking on their sin, and he is confessing on their behalf. He's interceding for them. Really, you get a picture of, he's, he's just pointing forward to Jesus. He'll do that with us. You know, Jesus, he gets in line at the baptism. John's baptizing people, and Jesus gets in line. Why do he get in line? Why do he get baptized? Even John's trying to say, no, don't do this. I need to be baptized by you. But Jesus gets in line with sinners. He comes and he, he lives among us and he identifies with us. And we see that for Daniel. So it points to Jesus. But it's also a model for us as a church. God's called us to be his people and to be so united in him that when one of us sins, we all take on the shame. When one of us falls, we all confess that because we are so united. And so we, we need to be praying things like, Lord, we, we have sinned. Our church has fallen short of her calling. We haven't loved you with all of our heart, soul, and strength. We haven't been a city on a hill like you have called us to be a city on a hill. Lord, we have sinned. And so we need to pray for one another. We need to confess, passionately confess our heartlessness at times. I was thinking this, that there are times in my life I care more about my backyard or I care more about my lawn than my neighbors who are perishing and going to hell. If that doesn't need confessing, if that doesn't need us saying, God, please forgive us, we have dropped the ball on your calling on our lives, then I don't know what needs confessing. And so we do that corporately. And then we see an appeal to God's mercy. Look at verse 9. It says, To the Lord our God belong mercy, belong forgiveness. God, we realize that when it comes to our salvation, the only thing that we have contributed to it is our sin that needs forgiving. All right? We don't contribute any righteousness. We don't contribute any good works. Just the sin that we need to be judged for. But we appeal to your mercy, not our righteousness. And then finally, we see an appeal for God's glory. Look at verse 19. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Do not delay for your own sake, O my God. 
because your city and your people are called by your name. Um, we have all of our kids at one time or another has gone through Mount Brook uh, Baptist Mother's Day out. I know a number of you have kids there as well. Uh, and so you're aware that there's biters in those classrooms. You know, your, your child's going to come home at some point with just another child's teeth on them. It, it happens, all right? And you're going to be like, tell me who did this. You know, tell me. Uh, and, and they will never tell you. I mean, you, you can go there, you can call, and you're like, just, can you tell me who did this? But they're not going to tell you the name of that child because they know you're immediately going to think of their parents in a completely different light. You're going to think of them as biters. I mean, you're going to be like, you know, stay, stay away. And, and so they don't give that. And, and we've gotten a little notice before. One of our children has been a biter. They will let you know if your child is a biter. It's really awkward if you happen to come across somebody and you're saying, yeah, somebody bit my child. And they're like, hmm, yeah, that's, that's horrible. But they're not going to tell you because the child bears the name of their father and, and, and you're going to project that on them. Well, we bear the name of Christ. We are Christians. We are those who follow Christ. And so our actions reflect on him and we bring shame to him. When, when Christians have the same divorce rate as the rest of the world, that shames Christ. When Christians care just as much about entertaining themselves like crazy, just like the rest of the world, then we shame Christ. When we neglect the poor like the rest of the world, we shame Christ because we bear his name. And so Daniel's saying, for, for your own sake, Lord, we're, we're, we're embarrassing you, we're shaming you, change us. We confess, we're, we're sinning, change us. So we're different. So he's pleading for God's own sake, for his own glory. Change our hearts. And this is how the Lord responds to Daniel's prayer. He responds by giving Daniel a really confusing vision about 70 weeks, all right? These last four verses of Scripture are the black hole of the Old Testament, okay? I'm just, you know... You go to comment, there's endless commentaries written on this, and you will just spiral down. These four verses actually almost kept me from becoming a pastor. Um, and, and that's not an exaggeration, because during my uh, ordination examination, in which I was in a room with uh, just different professors, different uh, theologians, um, different pastors gathered all around, and for hours I'm being grilled on the Bible, Apparently, some of them were very passionate about these four verses. Very. Maybe they did a doctoral dissertation on it. I don't know. But they kept going over and over to these 70 weeks in Daniel. And Joel, what do you think about you know, the 70 weeks? What's your distinction between the 62nd week and the first seven weeks? How does that fit with your eschatology and your relationship between Israel and the church? All right, and they're, just, they're asking me these over and over. And I lost it at my ordination exam to see if I should be a pastor. I, I, I blew up. I, I'm confessing this. I became very sarcastic. Uh, I said, you know, it's an excellent question. After this has been going on for probably 45 minutes at this point, said, that's a great question. You know, when I was already doing ministry at this time, I said, when a girl who is anorexic and she hates herself and she's cutting her body and she comes into my office, I look at her and say, you know, 
you could just understand the 67th week of Daniel. It's like, if you could just understand that, God is going to bring such healing into your life. And when I have the addicts come in and they're addicted to porn or they're addicted to drugs, I just say, you know, if you could just identify the distinction between the seventh and eighth week, it's all be, it'll all be good. And so I just kept going, all right? So uh, thankfully, the, one of the people just said, I think we need a break. And I said, great. <laughs> and so I just left. Um, I called up Lauren at that time. I said, well, I'm not being ordained. There's no way. There's no way. And she's like, you did what? Well, it gets a little worse. Uh, I, I, I come back after a 15-minute break to let everybody cool down, or me cool down. And one of my friends happened to be on the board, and he spoke up first. He goes, Joel, could you explain to us the gospel? And I said, thank you. First good question I've gotten in three hours. Yeah, I know. Yet I'm here, you know? <laughs> Yet I'm here. Um, and actually, the gospel has everything to do with this 70 weeks. It really does. If you, just look at the, if you just look at the big picture here, don't try to, you know, figure out the different stages of times and the whatever of the apocalypse. You know, just look at the big picture here of what the 70 weeks is about. It's the gospel. Verse 24, God says he's going to put an end to sin. He's going to atone for their iniquities. He's going to bring them to an everlasting righteousness. All right? Verse 25, he says that he's going to bring an anointed one. He's going to bring a prince. Anointed one is the word Messiah. Verse 26, this Messiah is going to be cut off. This Messiah is going to be killed. Or as Isaiah would say, cut off from the land of the living Verse 27 says that he will establish a new strong covenant and he's going to put an end to any more need for sacrifices and offerings. And so if you don't get caught up in the the black hole here, what you're going to see is that God says, hey, you know what? Daniel, I am going to respond to you. I am going to forgive you. I am going to give you an everlasting righteousness. And I'm going to do this by bringing in a prince, an anointed one who is going to be cut off. And when he is cut off, there's going to no longer be any more need for sacrifices. And the result's going to be a strong covenant, a new covenant for his people. It's the gospel. It's pointing us to Jesus. Because when we confess our sins and we plead for mercy, that's, that's God already through his spirit working in our hearts saying, come on, confess more, confess more. Yes, now you're getting at it. And he writes that gospel in on our hearts. It's a model prayer for us as a church. Which the scripture leads us to prayer. Scripture leads us to confession on our behalf. Scripture leads us to understand where we are in the history of the church. To understand our calling. To plead for mercy. And to understand the gospel. And I want us to take time as a church to do that. I know we we broke up in groups last week. We're going to do it again.